Hey, grace and peace to you. We have been going over the story of Jesus as told by Matthew, one of his 12 key followers. But the story of Jesus starting his ministry really begins with this guy, John the Baptist, calling out one of the Herods. Now, remember how Herod the Great had pretty much all of his kids named after him? Yeah, so buckle up while we jump on this roller coaster ride that is one piece of his family relationships. Now, one of Herod's sons was given a family name, Aristobulus. Aristobulus IV, by the way. There's a mouthful. Um, but not being called after his father like a lot of his brothers were must have seemed like a problem to him because he named, Aristobulus named his first three children Herod Agrippa, Herod, and Herodias. And his fourth child, Mariamne, he named after his mother who, who had been Herod the Great's favorite wife before Herod the Great was tricked into executing her. That story gets complicated, though, so we're going to leave it for another time. Well, we talk about the much simpler situation involving Herod, Herod, Herodias, their grandfather Herod, their uncle Herod II, who was also called Herod Philip, but who shouldn't be confused with Herod the Great's fifth son, Philip, who was called Philip the Tetrarch or Herod Philip II after his father's death. Yes, really. I I know. But when Herod the Great executed his son, Aristobulus, he also married his granddaughter, Herodias, to his brother, her uncle, Herod the Second. All right. So if you've got a piece of paper and you're diagramming this out, you've got Herod the Great up at the top, and then we've got Aristobulus, his son, and Herodias, his granddaughter, and then, yeah, uh, his brother, her uncle, Herod II, and uh, later on, she, uh, she being Herodias, she left divorcing Herod II in order to marry his half-brother, also her uncle, named uh, Herod Antipas, who dumped his first wife in order to marry Herodias. For those of you trying to trace these family connections, this just means that Herodias was not only her uncle's wife, but she was also her grandfather's daughter and sister to her husband while being sister to her father and aunt to her brother. Y'all with me? Yeah, now John the Baptist said that this was messed up, as, as it was. So Herod, uh, that's Herod Antipas, not Herod, Herod, Herod Agrippa, or Herod Philip, Herod Antipas had John arrested and held in the dungeon beneath his palace in Tiberias on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, this was a city that he had built to be his capital, and he named it in honor of the Roman emperor, Tiberius. But the city was built on an old graveyard, and it was ritually unclean, so devout Jews refused to live there, meaning that Herod had to import a population of foreigners, forced migrants, the desperately poor, slaves, and prisoners, and now John. So if you open your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, start at verse 12. And you're going to see that there, Matthew just simplifies this whole thing. All he says is, When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum beside the Sea of Galilee in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And this is important according to Matthew because, uh, look at verse 14, it says, This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee, where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. 
Yeah. Matthew is telling us that all of this is connected and that somehow this fulfills an 800-year-old prophecy from Isaiah, what we now call chapter 9 of the book of Isaiah. And what Matthew is quoting are the opening lines of a passage about the birth of the Prince of Peace, who was coming to usher in God's ultimate reign on earth. Um, this promised time when the whole world would be returned to God's dominion. And then Matthew connects that even deeper into the story that he's telling about Jesus by telling us this is at, oh, sorry, this is at uh, verse 17. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, quick drink. <clears throat> because pastors have misused some of these words from this verse, I mean, wherever they've used them, but uh, the words that are used in this verse have been misused over the centuries. We're going to do some quick definitions so that you can hear what Jesus was saying and not what our current cultural context has implanted into your brain. All right. And we're going to start with sin. The original meaning for the word sin translates to English as something like missing the mark or not reaching the goal. In the Bible, it's used to refer to any way that we don't choose to aim for the target of being who we were made to be. For example, Jesus told us to love our neighbor, but instead we boosted their car. All right. And we've missed the mark. Or rather than living through the pain served to us by life and learning to cope with it and be strengthened by it, we choose to self-medicate in hopes of numbing that pain rather than growing to be bigger than it. Or, or maybe we live in a morally, uh, we live a uh, morally exemplary life where we never do anything that could be said to be wrong, but we also never reach out to those in need around us. We never care for them or bind up their wounds or help them become what they were created to be. That is also missing the mark. Or we worry so much about what is mine and I don't want to or I don't think that I could share what is mine. So I turn you away because you just aren't worthy to share my meal or to benefit from the resources I could provide or to enter what I consider my land or my country. These are all things that we do that miss the point of being neighbors on this big blue-green ball that we call the earth. Sin is anything that we do that's contrary to what scripture shows us God wants. Things that we do that tear at the unity that we were created to live out. See, that is all sin. And Jesus preached that we need to repent of it. Which brings us to that church word I have heard a hundred people crow at one another in anger, using it like a weapon. Repent, sinner, repent! But that's not at all how that word should be used. It's certainly not how Jesus is using it. All the word repent means is to, to turn around or to turn back towards something. In this case, Jesus is telling us we need to turn from our mistaken, self-serving, community-destroying ways and turn back towards God's ways of unity and peace. Well, why would we do that? Well, because, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is near. Well, actually, kingdom is kind of an oversimplification. What he said is actually 
closer to declaring that God's reign or God's rule had begun to break in to become the dominant government over and in all. What he's doing here is he's calling us to allegiance to the creator. He's asking us to choose to follow the king. And, and though we might not realize it, Matthew was speaking to something that was happening in his day, which the people would have heard and repeated and prayed for as if they really wanted it to happen, which, which they did. And it was this prayer, and it had begun to spread through the population. It was almost a hymn, really, a, a song of praise to holy God, blessing him and asking him to deliver on a promise that the people looked forward to being fulfilled. And this prayer uh, or song, it went something like this. May the great name of God be exalted and sanctified throughout the world, which he created according to his will. May his kingship be established in your lifetime and in your days and in the lifetime of the entire household of Israel, swiftly and in the near future, and say, Amen. May his great name be blessed forever and ever, blessed, praised, glorified, exalted, extolled, honored, elevated, and lauded be the name of the Holy One, blessings and hymns, praises and consolations which are uttered in the world, and say, Amen. May there be abundant peace from heaven and life upon us and upon all of Israel, and say, Amen. He who makes peace in his high holy places, may he bring peace upon us and upon all Israel, and say, Amen. That was the prayer. And this prayer, it was circulating around. It was being used at services, growing from congregation to congregation. It worked its way into common use in daily prayer. It became something that everyone had memorized and was able to recite. Eventually it would be called the Kadesh, and it would be used more and more as part of mourning, but that took centuries. At the time that Matthew wrote, this prayer was a, a recitation, kind of like the, the Lord's Prayer in uh, a modern Christian community or the early Christian community, where it was a, something that everyone knew and could lead if they were called on to pray for a group. It was the, the Kadesh, it was a, a praise, but it's wrapped around a prayer and a plea, sharing the hope of the people that this time would come soon. This, this time when God's dominion wouldn't be challenged because his ultimate reign would have come at last. Every rebellion quelled, every injustice dealt with. It was this promise that the people had been waiting to see fulfilled ever since the days of the exile, when a prophet named Daniel had lived a life faithful to God and had been given these visions of the future, which he shared in a scroll that came to bear his name. And now we keep it in the book of Daniel in, in what we call the Old Testament. Daniel there, he prophesied that there would be four earthly kingdoms and that God's eternal reign would be born out of the fourth of those. And those four kingdoms were going to be beasts in their rule. They were going to be vicious, bloodthirsty, oppressive, demanding their way above all others. And by every calculation of the people at this time, the Roman Empire was that fourth beast. So they were like, oh, it's time for new rule. 
God's reign is coming and it's going to be different. It's not going to be so animalistic. It's, it's going to be ruled by this one who's said to be like a son of man. God's kingdom, it's going to be focused on deliverance, not on warfare. It's going to be focused on forgiveness, not retribution. It's going to begin like a, like a betrothal, sealing God and his people until such a time came for the consummation of the marriage when his reign would become complete and the last challenges would just fall away. Now, Jesus' first followers, people like Matthew, believed that he was the Son of Man whose appearance would initiate this final stage leading to the reign, the kingdom of God. Are y'all with me so far? All right, let's look back at verse verse 18. Keep my Bible on the right page here. Matthew chapter 4 at verse 18. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and Andrew. He saw them throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. And Jesus called out to them, Come, follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. Now, some stuff going on here that we are not always familiar with because it's part of this older culture. It's not part of our current culture. But in those days, if you wanted to become a disciple of a sage or a rabbi, you would approach them carefully, usually at their home or their school, because they, they would have one, most likely. Uh, most seekers of this sort, they'd be young men about 15 years of age, and they would ask about a position following the teacher. And the teacher would question them, sometimes for hours, before deciding if they would be able to follow him or not. And only the best and most likely to succeed would be chosen. Now, traveling teachers didn't take followers. If they weren't established enough to teach in one location, they were considered more like a, a journeyman than a master. Jesus, though, he was no ordinary teacher. At least in some cases, he went to call the students he wanted to follow him rather than waiting for them to come to him. And though he might have had a house in Capernaum that he taught from, he doesn't seem to have been anything other than an itinerant preacher. He traveled from place to place to share his message. But even though he doesn't match the traditional model of a master teacher, he does fit another mold that we read about in scripture and in some of the second temple literature that people have treated as authoritative at times. Uh, passages such as Proverbs chapter 8 or First Enoch, that's uh, an apocryphal book, but First Enoch chapter 42 is like Proverbs 8. It speaks about divine wisdom and it says that divine wisdom calls out in the marketplace for people to follow. Now, to Matthew, Jesus embodied wisdom. And so he doesn't shy away from revealing the unusual way that Jesus identified and sought out students. And he doesn't hesitate to let us know that anyone who chose to follow Jesus was accepted. Just as the most worthy student of an established master would have been accepted, Jesus wanted everyone to know that the reign of God was at hand, and he wanted everyone to respond by turning to follow him as he showed them how to follow the Lord. Now, Peter and Andrew, they were certainly aware of who Jesus was. Andrew had been a follower of John, someone who'd spent time with Jesus previously. 
I'm sorry, Andrew, uh, John obviously had spent time with Jesus. Andrew had spent time with Jesus previously, if only for a short while. We read about that in a couple of the other Gospels. But with John the Baptist in prison, Andrew seems to have gone home while he decided to do to what, what he's going to do next. I mean, think about it. You're, you're following a master. That master gets arrested. What are you going to do? Do you just hang around outside the prison all the time? There's not really much that you can do. So, um, especially since John was sort of sentenced to uh, life uh, in prison. Now, Peter might have spent a day listening to and speaking with Jesus and Andrew before. Uh, he was older. He was probably in his 20s. He may have been even older than that. He was married, and he was pursuing trade as a fisherman. He was too old to be a disciple. His time had come and gone. This was a young man's game. Instead of learning at the feet of his spiritual master, Peter had learned from his father or a family friend the trade of fishing, including sailing, net mending, the knowledge of which fish to catch when and where to bring in the most profitable haul. Uh, there were people who would have counted on him and the income that he brought in from the lake each day in order to get by. But when Jesus called, Peter left it all behind on the shore just the same as Andrew did. And a few minutes later, before these guys even would have had time to process the choice they had just made, something similar happened again. Look at verse 21. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. And they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father behind. Now, what the fathers or any fishing partners might have thought about the uh, boys all taken off like this is not described, possibly because Matthew chose not to speculate, but more likely it was because they weren't happy and everyone would know they weren't happy about this. See, in their culture, your status in the world was dictated by the honor or shame that you carried with you. And there was certainly some honor which accrued to families if their, fun, their sons were accepted by a well-known teacher as a disciple. But that time seems likely to have been long past for these men, probably for all four of them. Leaving your family and your job to follow a wandering teacher into the desert is something that would have made them the talk of the town, but not in a good way, right? Especially Peter, he had responsibilities he was supposed to be living up to, and he has just left them behind to go follow this guy. But there was something about the call from Jesus that got their attention. And I think it's what they were asked to do. <clears throat> I will show you how to fish for people, Jesus told them. Dr. Ben Witherington points out that this is no simple call to some kind of spiritual discipleship plan. Instead, these guys are being called to learn and to do something. Well, what are they going to do? Well, at this point, it's a little unclear what they know about Jesus's ministry or plan, but it seems likely he was already beginning to grow a reputation as a healer and an exorcist. Luke, in his gospel, when you read through his, his story of Jesus, he puts the call of the disciples after Jesus had been in Capernaum for a bit. 
And Luke stresses the miracles of healing and the casting out of demons. He even says that one of the people who was healed was Simon Peter's mother-in-law. So it could be that these new followers thought they were going to learn how to become miracle workers just like Jesus. Which, as it turns out, is exactly what happened, even though that wasn't really the point. What was the point? Well, look at verse 23. Jesus traveled through the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. That's the point. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. News about him spread as far as Syria, and people were soon bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went, people from Galilee, the Ten Towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from the east of the Jordan River. So the, the point, as Matthew makes clear at the beginning of that part I just read, the point was announcing the good news that the reign of God was happening. God's kingdom was breaking into the world. It was taking the place of that fourth kingdom. It was being born out of that fourth kingdom. This is why Jesus was here. This is what he was here to do. He was here to announce the good news. Everything else, it's just a side effect of that major announcement. Because the promise of the reign of God was the promise of deliverance for his people. Both those in Israel and those who were Gentile in origin. So Jews and non-Jews alike were accepted and encouraged to share allegiance to the king above all kings, the Lord God. This is no spiritual allegiance to God and my earthly allegiance to Israel or Rome or whatever. No, this is a complete giving of self, body and spirit to God. If you follow Jesus, you're a globalist, or you should be. In the Kaddish, the, the people pray for abundant peace from heaven. In Jesus, they received that abundant peace. In, in Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom, and shalom is not just the absence of conflict. That's a lot of times when we think of peace, that's what we just think. Oh, there's peace and then there's war. Well, that's not at all the entirety of that word. Peace, shalom, is the presence of wholeness. It's being complete, both physically and spiritually, whole. The dominion of God on earth is one of abundance in all good things. And the good news of that truth spreads through the province of Galilee and through Judea and through Roman towns and cities and through Greek cities and all the way out to Syria as well. Matthew's focus is on Jesus's fulfillment of scripture. Remember the Isaiah quote that he referenced at the beginning of this section. It referred to Galilee being a place of Gentiles living in darkness and death who would be delivered by the light of the promised Messiah. So we have effectively, an answered prayer. The reign of God is beginning to replace the kingdoms of the world, and the abundance of wholeness is that peace being achieved, that peace that people are praying for. To each person, Jesus reaches out and calls them to follow him. 
And, and even when there are situations where he doesn't ask someone to come travel with him, he says, follow me. And by follow, he doesn't mean some passive sit back and watch kind of faith. Instead, he's talking about a faith that goes to seek deliverance of all that it comes into contact with. It's a faith that spreads this idea that we live in God's kingdom and we need to live as subject to his kingdom or we are living in rebellion against his kingdom. Live as subjects of God. We can do that. And if that is the kind of good news you are willing to inhabit and take part of, spiritually and physically, both being healed and offering healing, then pay attention because Jesus is calling for you to come and follow him. Even if, like Peter, you're too old or you feel like you've gone too far some other direction, Jesus has a place for each and every one of us and a way for us to learn to fish for people. Now, if Jesus had called pizza delivery guys, he probably would have said, hey, let's deliver the kingdom. I'll teach you how to deliver the kingdom. If he had uh, called um, an advertising agent, he probably would have said, hey, let's go market to the masses. Fishing for people may not be your thing but you know what you're not a fisherman if you are maybe it is your thing that's how he reached these people to you think about what you do in life how do you interact with people jesus wants to reach through that to touch people in your life in your career in your sphere of influence all right are you with me and i hope and pray that you are because this call is available to every one of us jesus is calling you come follow me now, you have to decide, are you going to follow him and live in God's kingdom, which is coming to inhabit the whole of the world? Or are you going to live in rebellion? Are you going to try to live outside that kingdom? Are you going to try to live outside of the sphere of God's influence? Are you going to try to make your own kingdom and set it up to compete against the kingdom of God? Because, frankly, the odds of that... Not really in your favor or mine. Let's close with a word of prayer. Hey, Father, thank you so much for the messages and the stories that you leave us in your word. Thank you for sending Jesus to let us know that your kingdom is at hand, that your reign is present in our world, and that we can start to serve you as your subjects right now. Lord, don't let a single person who hears this message reject it. Keep at us. Let us know that you are here, that you are present. Keep trying to drag us into your kingdom until we pay attention because it is only in your kingdom that we will find real peace, the peace of healing, the peace of true justice, the peace of physical and spiritual coming together and working together in our lives to make us the people that you created us to be from the beginning. God, help that to be something we all want and crave and would do anything to be part of. Teach us to follow Jesus. We pray this in the name of that same Jesus, your son, who you sent to this world to show us the way.
Amen. And amen. Hey, grace and peace to you all. Go out this week and have a wonderful time in God's kingdom as God's subjects. Wherever you go, you have nothing to fear because God is already there. So go with God. Grace and peace to you all.